part of this culture that has made sex uh, maybe the ultimate or one of the ultimate idols. And so it's understandable that you would be nervous and that I would be nervous when we talk about this. Over the next month, um, the different uh, sermon topics today is a theology of, of sex. And I just called it Theology of Sex 101. And then next week, uh, we will look at uh, singleness. And then the week after that, marriage, uh, and then divorce and, and remarriage. And then finally, the last uh, series in this four-week, last sermon in this four-week series on um, sexual identity. Uh, and then that will lead us right into the season of Advent, starting the week after. <laughs> but anyways, I do feel uh, this has been a long time in coming. I have uh, wanted to, to talk about these things for a while, and I haven't felt it was the right time. Maybe this is the right time. I hope it is the right time. And... Um, as we continue through this series, I hope you continue praying for me as these messages are, are being prepared and, um, and as I deliver them. So, uh, sex, it is, uh, you have sermon notes. The sermon notes are, there's some lines for you to doodle on. I know the other side, uh, some of you are doodlers. Feel free to, to doodle on the blank page on the second half. Uh, not everything that I say will be in those sermon notes, and so that is kind of a, a guide. You can take that home to maybe remember, or if you want to jot down questions that you want to email Text me or whatever later, that's fine. Um, so if you want to follow along in that, also please have your Bibles ready. If you use a Bible on your phone, that's totally cool too. So um, get ready to, uh, to talk about this. Over the next month, the, the general underlying idea is, uh, we've talked about this before in our Don't Drink the Kool-Aid um, series. Our culture has very strong, um, strong teachings, strong, uh, strong currents. And some philosophers call these the scripts, scripts of our, our society. And they, they teach us certain things about certain things that through, through movies, through uh, newspapers, through articles, uh, through music. And it's just part of our everyday culture. We absorb these scripts. And one of the strongest scripts is related to sex and, and sexuality. And it is difficult for us as believers living in this culture to, to align or to, to live in this culture because the, the script that is being fed to us and that we have bought into is different than what we read about in, in the Bible. And God's view of marriage and sexuality and what sex is for is so it's hard unless we have a deeper understanding of what sex is all about. There is um, the, the TV show Friends used to be popular, and I guess it's kind of popular again because it's on Netflix and uh, you can binge watch that one. I'm not recommending that you do. Um, it is, doesn't have very high morals. The morality in that show is, is lower than what uh, a Christian lives up to. But um, part of this script that is very popular, very common in our culture that we have absorbed, is reflected in that TV show. And in your notes, you'll see there is that one, season three, episode 13, the one where Richard and Monica are just friends. And uh, Richard is uh, Tom Selleck in real life. So he's on the show as Richard and Monica. They're friends. And uh, the scene opens up. Um, they're in Monica's bedroom, and she's in bed with Richard. And uh, Monica's like, so, she says, so we can be friends? And who's friends who sleep together? And Richard says, absolutely. This will be just something we do, like racquetball. And Monica says, oh, sounds smart and healthy to me. But this is, this, this is really what is being, our culture believes. Sex is, is just something that two people do. And as long as it's mutual and consensual and it's adults and no one's getting hurt, like what, what's the big deal? What is the big deal really about sex? And that sex is, is meant to be for husband and wife within marriage. Like really, 
that sounds old and archaic. We're enlightened. We know more now. And the other thing, um, if you want to read a book, I recommend Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity by Lauren Winner. And there's a quote in your notes there. And this, I think, represents also this, this cultural script that we have. This is a Christian, and she was wrestling with uh, sexuality and, and what is Christian to do with sex. And she said, so instead of digging deeper into the question of Christianity and sex, she says, I settled for an easy conclusion. What God really cared about was that people not have sex that might be harmful okay, in some way. Sex that was clearly meaningless or loveless or casual. See, that's what God was really concerned about. And you hear that, right? In our churches too and in this culture. Yes, the context for sex mattered, she writes, but marriage might not be the only appropriate context. As long as everyone involved was honest, no false promises were made, no one got hurt. I mean, what's wrong with that, right? As long as sex was a sign of love and commitment, surely God would approve or at least not disapprove. And this was part of her journey. You could read about it in her book. So this is the cultural script that, has, that we are fed and that we are taught and we have bought into um, probably more than, than we realize. So this is really the theology of sex 101. I call it 101 because it's, we're going to answer the question, what is sex? And what is the big deal you know, about it? Like, what is wrong with how these people have described their experiences, or their ideas. It's like, really, what is the big deal? And so, um, as we look through scriptures, um, it would be one thing I could just list all the, the scriptures and put them on there, put them in your notes. Uh, here's all the scriptures that God says, uh, you can't have sex outside of marriage. And just like, you know, list them. Um, but we're not going to do that. That doesn't really work. Often, uh, Christians, and not, not only non-believers, but Christians, we, we know things, but we don't live. Right, so I know what the Bible says, but so it's, it's not that simple. I think we need to go deeper. We need to understand a, what, what sex really is. And one person has said, I sent out in, in an email earlier, bad sex comes from bad theology. And so let us look a little deeper today. But if I were going to share different things, uh, different verses here, this is what God says about sex, and this is why you can't do it outside of marriage, etc., etc. First Corinthians would be a great place to go. I was so happy last year that our Bible quizzes were memorizing First and Second Corinthians, and I told them at our first meet that we had here, I said, I'm so happy that you're memorizing this because you are going to be memorizing three chapters, First Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, it's all about sex. And you're going to learn about sex from God who created it. And isn't that wonderful? And that made some of them nervous and some of the parents kind of giggled. But really, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, and the word that often comes up is this word porneia. It's the Greek word uh, for porneia. And so how do we translate that? It doesn't necessarily equal pornography, but that's where we get pornography from, from this word porneia. It's often translated as sexual immorality. And if you wanted to know... Remember, the first century, they were writing to Jewish people who were now um, following the Messiah. And so the word porneia to them, to a Jewish person, right away, they're going to think, you can put this in your notes because it's not there, Leviticus 18. For them, this is, this is what sexual immorality was. This is what porneia meant to them. And there's a whole list of things that they're describing what sexual immorality is. And we're not going to go through that, but you can uh, later. And some people have said, well, you know, porneia, maybe it's fornication, sexual immorality, what really is. Uh, immoral, so maybe it's not, obviously adultery is, is not good, but what if you're not married? Is that, that's not really what this is referring to. 
But you really can't get, a, when you read 5, 6, and 7, or 1 Thessalonians 4, you can put that in your notes as well, especially chapter 7, you can't get around the fact that this word porneia, sexual immorality, is referring to sex outside of marriage. And that is not the way it was intended to be, and that is prohibited um, in God's will and through the scriptures. So that's basically really what sex is. So you can go and look up those verses if you want. A lot of you know that already. But let's go a little bit uh, deeper. The starting point, um, as you can see in your notes, has to be that we have bodies. And God created us with physical bodies. And as you know from the account in Genesis, God created us. He created us male and female. And as he went through the creation account, you, you know this most like, more than likely. He created plants and he created the sea. And every time he created something, at the end of the day, he said, oh, this is good. But when he created humans, what did he say? So this is very good. He created us with bodies. And the scriptural view of our bodies is that bodies, it is good. Our physical bodies are actually good. And he created us to relate to one another through our physical bodies. God created sex. And so what is the big deal about sex? I mean, God's the one who created it. So he probably knows how it's best done, how it's best handled. We need to understand that it is a good thing. Sex is good. Our physical bodies are good. Because there has been times throughout church history where people have... um, Theologians and churches have kind of shut no, the body is, is evil and it's not good. And back in the first century, it would be called Gnosticism, and it kind of makes its way through today in different forms. But you are an integrated person. You are part, your body is part of, of who you are. And the body is very important all throughout scriptures. Jesus came and became incarnate, took on flesh as a human being, and he took on bodily form. He had a physical body. And then when Jesus died and came back to life, he had a physical body again. And when we are resurrected at the end of time, we will have physical bodies again. So physical bodies, it's not something to think, oh, it's bad. It is actually good. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about the body. One of the metaphors he uses for the church is the body, right? We are one body. It is integral to just theology and to scriptures. So you need to understand that our bodies, our physical bodies are good. You also need to know that we're, we're, it's, a, it's part of who we are. And I, I know this isn't really good. So kind of, I, I put that in the notes. So that doesn't really sound, but it's, it's part of who we are. You can't separate yourself from your body. Our culture actually likes to, to tell us that what you do with your body doesn't really count. You know, like maybe who you are as a person is different than who you are in, in your body, but it's, your body is, is integral and it's, it's part of, of who you are. Um, Lecrae. Moore wrote a book called uh, Unashamed. It's an autobiography. And he talks about, as you see in his notes, the first time he went to a Christian conference about sex, he was astonished because he said the conference speaker said our bodies are valuable. He said, I'd never heard that before. It, I'd never connected spirituality and sexuality before. And I had never heard someone talk about how valuable um, my body was. So this is the beginning point. Our bodies are good. They're created by God. And he created us to live uh, relationally with each other. And so it was his plan from the beginning. So I want to look at, um, start with something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you can look there. A few of the verses, verse 4, 5, and 6 are in your notes, but if you want to look at the larger context, then you need to open your scriptures. 
This was a time when um, Pharisees, they're always trying to trick Jesus, right? They're, they're, maybe they're jealous of him, and he's getting all the attention. And so they, they're always coming, oh, let's ask him this question, because if he answers this way, he's damned. If he answers this way, he's damned. Like, we got him. It's a trick. And every time, Jesus is able to come with this great response, and it puts it back on them. And then, they're, oh, that was stupid. Like, who thought of this question anyway? That was you know, dummy. So here's another time when he, they are approaching Jesus, and um, there were common thoughts about divorce. Um, that it's two streams of thought mainly um, that a man could divorce his wife if there was if she was cheating. You know, if she committed adultery, then I mean that's the only way, and then divorce can happen. Or other people thought, um, no, it's not necessarily related only to sexual immorality. That it could be like if you just don't like her or or she annoys you, then it's okay too. So they they brought this question to Jesus. And we're not talking about divorce. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But Jesus says um, in uh, verses four, five, and six. It's great. He says, haven't you read, um, assuming that they read their, their Bibles, right? Haven't you read? Are you reading your Bibles? You know, haven't you read? Um, he replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. I love how he goes back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He says, made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. And then he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. A starting point is always back to Genesis for so much of our theology. Genesis 1 and 2, and Jesus is taking us back there again. We went back there to, to realize that our bodies are good, and God created them. He created us this way, and Jesus goes back there again with this question. And he says that God created them male and female. You can decide which color represents which gender. Because color has nothing to do with, you know, masculinity or femininity. But we have bodies, and God created us this way, and it is good. Male and female, he says, he created them. But he talks about this becoming one flesh. He says, um, the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they, they, they join together. And this is um, you know, the word um, to know. Uh, in Hebrew, you may know this, and it's always great for funny jokes, but uh, know um, means more than just knowing someone or knowing about someone. It's also the same word uh, that is used in the Hebrew scriptures, all the Old Testament, for um, having sex, to have sexual intercourse. It's yada, the word yada. And so it's like you, when Adam knew Eve, right, maybe back in some of the older translations, it's not just, oh, hi, Eve, nice to meet you. It's like he knew her. And so this is how they, they joined together. They became one flesh. There's this joining Together, male and female joined together. Husband and wife are bound uh, together. This is um, this is what the purpose of, of sex is. Sexual intercourse is what binds people together. In the the marriage covenant, the husband and wife are are bound together, and they become no longer uh, two separate individuals. They become one person. And so, it says this is why they leave their family of origin. Um, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, and, and the woman also leaves her father and mother. They're, they're united to his wife, and, and, um, and she's united to her husband. The two become one. They are no longer two anymore, but one flesh. I'll try to demonstrate that with this. Every time I practice this, I spilled lots. I didn't spill any today. I did? So you put blue raspberry and red strawberry together, and you get grape. 
I wonder if it actually, do you ever wonder if it actually tastes like grape? You know, just red and blue make, it's kind of purple. Um, this is how we make our communion juice, by the way, just, just kidding. We don't, it's actually <laughs> grape juice, but the two become one, and see, there's no more red, there's no more blue, it's something all together, and they are unified uh, together. But actually, you may have heard, um, there's the science of sex, you may have heard of this uh, hormone, oxytocin, um, scientists discovered it. Um, in the, the breastfeeding process, it is, is something that is released um, through, through breastfeeding when the, the mother and the young you know, infant are, are together in the close. And it, it's a, a hormone that is released to help bond the mother and child together. It's, called the, it's, it's dubbed um, the attachment hormone. But you may also, you may not know, but you might be surprised that the same hormone is released during sexual intercourse not only in women, but especially in women, to create this bonding, this, this chemical kind of reaction. So it is meant, any, any book on sexuality you can read, and they will talk about these, this hormone, oxytocin, and also in men, it's vasopressin. It is also meant to bond, to, for, to develop this, this mutual this trust in this relationship. It is just the science, it is the chemistry that happens in our body. The two become one. That's what that's what sexual intercourse does. So this is very interesting because um, that's what's happening. This is why there really is no such thing as casual sex or uh, friends with benefits. It's not you can't separate, you know, who I am and then and that's what I do. But this is, you know, I'm, you're actually creating a chemical bond. And this is how it was intended right from the very beginning. This is, it's a bond for, between husband and wife. And so that's why breakups are so hard for many people because they, they were bound. You, even when it's not intended. You know why I know that? Okay, so right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I forget what verses are up here, sorry. And I, can, I should have made the font bigger. Okay, back up. I had it in the right order, I guess. Can I go back one more? Well, I'll just read this one. We already read that one. Okay, next one. This is what Paul writes. He says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, okay, this is recreational, right? Casual, maybe. Recreational sex. Is one with her in body. And then he also quotes from Genesis and from Jesus. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. This is what sex does. The science proves it. It's in the script. This is how God created sex to be. It's a bonding, it's a forming, it's a strengthening of that relationship, even in the case of sleeping with a prostitute. So no wonder Paul says words like this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. See, being our physical body is central, it's, part, it's integral to who we are. Now, as a pastor, and as I talk to other pastors, there's certain things that we hear all the time. And I understand. I totally get. So I'm not, I'm not judging and saying, I, I understand. But um, people think, well, but what's the big deal? Um, or, like, how close? You know, like, what is allowed and what's not allowed? Okay, like, let's say the actual, you know, court's act of sex is out, but how clo- what else can we do? You know, and are, are these other things considered sex or are they not? And our school system teaches that they are not. Uh, there's different activities. So they want to, how close can I get? But this is possible. No, this is, this is a, 
This is what it is. So flee from it. Don't, you shouldn't be asking the question, how close can I get? You should be saying, how can I flee? How can I have things in place that don't let me get to that point? Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. This is what happens. Now, I want to talk about covenants. We have an old covenant and a new covenant, right? That's what Testament means. Old Testament, New Testament. Covenants are, it's hard to really understand a lot of the scripture if you don't understand covenants, because there's covenants, right? All three, you've heard these in Sunday school, a youth group, you've been reading the, the, the stories, lots about covenants. A covenant is essentially, as you see there in your notes, there's two parts. Promises are exchanged uh, between the two parties. They're spoken uh, in the presence of witnesses, in the presence of a community. And then secondly, there's some sort of sign. Um, the covenant is sealed or um, with a sign that represents or symbolizes this new relationship. Right? So there's, there's a community of witnesses, and they, they speak, they stay, make these vows, and then there's some sort of sign, a symbol that represents this new relationship. That's at the core of what a covenant is. You can probably think of several covenants through in Bible stories. Here are some, for example. Do um, you remember uh, Noah? Probably if I go here closer, eh? There's a covenant that God made with Noah. So we call it the Noah covenant. And um, God destroyed uh, everyone except Noah and his family with the flood. And then remember afterwards, there's the rainbow, right, in the sky. And that was a sign that God said he's never going to act like this on, to his creation again. The sign was... Um, the rainbow. And some people have said that it was, it could be, um, which is very similar to how ancient Near Eastern uh, other covenants happened at that time, that it was maybe God's weapon, like a bow and arrow, you know, the bow, and it's upside down and it's facing up, you know, away from, from earth. Uh, that would be consistent with other ancient Near Eastern customs, but it, it's a bow, it's a rainbow, and it means there's no more flood, right? You're familiar with that one. There's the sign of the covenant. There's also um, the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham that he would have descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. No one could count them. It would be a blessing to all nations in Genesis uh, chapter 15. And then the next chapter, uh, what happens? He, you know, he thinks this is taking a long time. I'm getting old. My wife's you know, old. It's, just, it's not going to happen. And so they make this other plan. right? And he uh, decides to bear children through someone else, through Hagar. Then in chapter 17, uh, God revisits him and says, We're gonna, no, no, it's not. It's going to be through your wife, Sarah. This is how it's going to happen. Have faith. And so he created this, this covenant, and the sign was circumcision. And the meaning was if, if you're part of the people of God, then you're, you're the, the, the boys in the family and the men are, are circumcised, representing the, the patriarchy of the time, how that is. You are part of the people of God. That's what it meant. Right? So that, that the promise that God made and then the seal that represents that relationship. There's another covenant. There we go. On Mount Sinai, we call this the Sinai Covenant, the one that God made with Moses and um, with the, the Ten Commandments. And this is now how you are going to live as a people of God. And, and we make promises, right? This, this, here's a covenant. I'm, I'm going to protect you forever. I'm going to make you um, flourish and all these things. And you're going to, this is how you live in relationship with me. There's, there's a covenant. And the sign was uh, the Sabbath day of rest, meaning that represents that, you, that God protects you, like rest. Okay, it's... It's God's provision, the provision of, of Yahweh. And then there's another covenant. 
the new covenant. And this is uh, Jesus came and he said, this is a new covenant, right? Represent this blood that I'm shedding on the cross. At the last supper, he said, this represents a new covenant, the forgiveness, right? The body, the bread. And he used that, um, the Passover supper, and infused that with new meaning. So the sign of this is Lord's Supper. And we celebrate this uh, at least once a month here at our church. And the meaning is the sacrifice and the reconciliation. This is a new covenant, right? He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says those words, right? It's representing a new covenant. There's a sign for that as well. And we keep reenacting that. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, part of what we do is we are reminding ourselves that, yes, we are part of this new people. We are, we are the, part of the people of the kingdom. And so we, we act in a certain way. And so we have a time of confession when we aren't really living, you know, according to uh, this new covenant relationship that we have. And the meaning uh, is Jesus' sacrifice for us and reconciliation. But each of these covenants, then, there are also consequences. With the covenant of Abraham, if someone is not circumcised, they are cut off, pun intended, uh, from uh, the people. There, it says right there, uh, the, this is the consequence. If you're, you're banished from the people, you, you need to have this. Now, uh, circumcision existed before Abraham, but, but God took this and made this, this the symbol and the sign of the new people of God. But there's a consequence for it. The Sinai Covenant. Sorry, that's overlapping a little bit. Uh, not practicing the Sabbath, the consequence was, was death, actually. The New Covenant. The consequence is sickness or falling asleep. You know how that, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about, uh, this is why some of you have fallen asleep, and many of you have become sick, because you're, you're doing the Lord's Supper like wrong, like in an in an inappropriate way. It sounds strong, right? When we read the, the full 1 Corinthians 11, and we think, this, you mean some of us are sick because of this? And falling asleep, you know, some of you are, we've died. There are consequences for not, um, for breaking this, this covenant. And so I thought you need to understand there's a, there's a verbal, uh, the promises, there's a sign, and then there's also consequences. In Judaism and in Christianity, marriage is a covenant. Vows are made in the presence of people, witnesses, and community. That's the first part. And then the second part, it is sealed. The symbol is the sexual intercourse, meaning the two have become one flesh. And both of those go together to represent. That's why this binding together is such a, such a great um, symbol, it, it's, it's meaningful. This is, it's meant for husband and wife to bind the two together, to ratify that, that covenant. And so it actually was so strong a conviction for the Jewish people that they, they had to even show proof that the covenant, the promises that were actually ratified um, through sexual intercourse. And we won't get into the details. Um, some cultures even have witnesses, um, we don't, thankfully, but it, it's part of, of that. And, and um, we have annulments, you know, if, if, instead of divorce. So there's, it's part of, if, that is part of our laws, and it comes from this Jewish covenant, which has become the Christian covenant. Marriage is a covenant. We make vows in front of people. We promise. It's oath, and then it is sealed by this symbol that represents this new relationship. The two have become one. That's what sex is. 
And that's why it's such a big deal. Sex outside of marriage, you are chemically bonding yourself, relationally to, so you're not. And you cannot separate yourself from that physical thing. So in our set-free retreats, part of the, some of the studies deal with this because it is such an idol in our day and things that I have also uh, dealt with. And there's ties that we have made with people that need to be broken because we are to be um, in covenant relationship with our husband and with husband and wife. This is the big deal about sex. And some people, again, you know, I talk to other pastors, it's, it's, it's all the same, and I get it. I totally understand why people say these things, but um, people um, are sexually active before they get married, and they say, yeah, but it's, you know, we're, we're, we, we're basically married anyways. Like, we're going to get married, we just haven't had the ceremony yet. That is so common, and I understand exactly um, where they're coming from, so like, I get it. But they don't want to be treated like their husband or wife yet, generally. So, oh, okay, you are. Okay, so let's pretend that, let's act like you are. See, they've done one half of this covenant. They haven't completed it. There needs to be witnesses. There needs to be a ser- And even our laws, which are not, you know, very Christian these days, you can't get even legally married without another witness, at least. If you go to the judge or whoever, that, that's part of... Now, that may change at some point, but you can see it's still part of our culture a little bit. It's, there, there's two parts to it. And so it's almost like, yeah, it's just one half. So get married. That's the best thing that you can do. Get, make it real. Actually become husband and wife because that's what sex is for. Does that make sense? You're, you're binding yourself. And it's a beautiful way to make that, the leaving the father and mother of your family of origin and coming together, and now you are one, this is the big deal um, about sex. So are there any consequences? You know, if we, if we treat this covenant loosely, or we defile this, this covenant, what, what, are there, what are the consequences of this? Just like any other biblical covenant, there are consequences. And uh, I didn't take me very long to Google you know, Health Canada's website and find evidence, a lot of evidence, that our culture, non-Christians, psychologists, anyone, our government, says these are consequences of, of I mean, they might not say that, but consequences of, of breaking or desecrating the sign of marriage. In Canada, between 1988 and 2015, so it's the most recent data available, uh, chlamydia is the most commonly reported STI in Canada. It has risen from 39,000 to 116,000 uh, annual cases among all ages and genders. Those of you who work in the health field, you know this. Gonorrhea infections increased from 5,000 to almost 20,000 in the same time period. And infectious syphilis rates okay, rose dramatically from 501 to 4,551 cases. And this needs to be shocking because 10 years ago, Syphilis was almost completely eradicated in North America. And now it is on the rise. Just the last 10 years, it is on the rise and flourishing. These are some of the the consequences. There is a high divorce rate. Um, As you know, there is a lot of adultery, um, a lot of uh, unwanted babies resulting from this sex outside of marriage. And sexual dysfunction is on the rise all throughout North America and in Canada. Many people have emotional scars 
and psychological stars from their promiscuous activity, aren't these some of the consequences of, of breaking this covenant and using this sign in, inappropriately? Dr. Jason Wong is a physician. This is just from you know, the Health Canada website. I don't know who Jason Wong is, but he's a physician epidemiologist at the BC Centre for Disease Control, and he tracks sexually tra- transmitted infections. And he says, in general, all STIs have been increasing, all of them, in the last 20 years. Now, can you imagine, let's say, what, what if, if this sign, if, this, if sexual intercourse was kept as God intended to be a bonding part of a relationship between male and female, between husband and wife, within marriage? What if that was the only time sex was happening? How would that affect us? How would our culture look different? Well, there would be no adultery. There'd be no husbands or wives sleeping with other people outside of marriage. And that is a huge heartbreaker, is it not? So much chaos comes into play when that happens, and it's like a domino effect. There wouldn't be broken homes, right? Children going back and forth, and, or single, there wouldn't be as many single-family parents. You know, maybe there's single-family parents because one of them died, but it's not because of sexual promiscuity. Um, Child trafficking. Movie stars tell us, you know, this is their cause. This is human trafficking, and it's largely for sex, sexual purposes. That that wouldn't happen, right? There would be no sexual child trafficking if we just kept this within the marriage covenant. Child abuse, sexual abuse, sexual slavery, there'd be no rape. Can you imagine a world like that? No, there would be no need for a Me Too movement. It wouldn't exist. There would be no sexually transmitted infections or plagues. What the, prostitution would not exist because sex is kept for marriage, right? Isn't God's plan? Like, it's beautiful. It really, really is. Um, pornography would not exist. It would be a completely different world. These are just some of the consequences that we bring on ourselves, on our culture, on our society, and our families when we treat this sign, whatever the word is, inappropriately. It is meant for within marriage between husband and wife. The consequences are huge. So sex really is a big deal. And it is not like racquetball. That's what people think. That's what we're taught. It is not just something that anyone can do, you know, as long as they're adults and we both agree and no one gets hurt, no harm is done. That is not what sex is. This is the script that our culture feeds us and we have bought into this. It is an idol of our times and it may be an idol for us here or any of you, some of you. Sex is a big deal. God created it, and he knows best how, how to have sex. It's between male and female. The two come together. It creates that unity. So, what do we do now? Now what? There's a few things I'd like to... Um, I just want to run through a couple of these things. I want to lead us all in prayer. 
and I'm, I'm not asking you to do anything that I have not willing to do myself or actually I've not already done, um, a lot of us are going to be in the same boat here. Don't think, oh, it's just me. That's a lie from the devil. It's never just you. I mean, you're unique in your personality and everything, but the things that you suffer, it's, it's not that unique, really. Just people are quiet and silent and they don't speak up. But if you realize we're all in this together, I hope you understand that, me included. Maybe some of you just, just need to repent for behaviors. Just repent. And I want, you to, I want you to understand, too, that Jesus who spoke these words, like it's the same Jesus, okay, who, remember that time when when the Pharisees, these men, brought this uh, woman to Jesus, and they said, look, we caught her in adultery. I'm not sure how they actually caught her, but they caught her in adultery. Okay, there's, it's, there's no doubt about it. It's proven. She committed adultery. Okay, Jesus, what do we do with the, the Old Testament? The scriptures tell us that she is to be stoned and killed. Do you remember that? And they came to him, and Jesus said, um, you know, he bent down and wrote something in the sand, and he said, whoever is without sin, go ahead and be the first to cast the first stone. And one by one, they, they left. The oldest, oldest man left first. And then there was no one left except Jesus and this woman. You remember that story, John chapter 8. And what did he say? He said, Who, who's condemning you? And she said, well, they've all gone. And Jesus said, well, I don't condemn you either. Understand that. Jesus doesn't condemn you either. But then he did say, I don't condemn you either, but he said, stop sinning. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Remember that. You might be feeling condemnation, but it's not a true, it's not condemnation. Repent. Turn. Like, one day you say, God, I am sorry. I have, wrong, I have taken this out of context, and I just need to repent, and then turn. Maybe in a few minutes I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Maybe that's the kind of prayer that you need to do. And remember, God is so gracious and compassionate. Like, you're not, he already knows. Like, you're not hiding it from him. Just ask him for forgiveness. And you know what? He'll forgive you if you repent. Isn't that beautiful? Because, like, sometimes if I'm really harboring something and someone could, I'm like, yeah, I forgive you, but I don't really. God's not like that. He loves to forgive. Just, just repent. Some of you maybe need to receive forgiveness and healing. Or maybe you need to ask someone for forgiveness. And I'm not sure if you're in that boat, but forgiveness. Accept it. Say, God, I'm sorry. Receive that forgiveness. And maybe you need to receive healing. And, and we're happy, any of us on the, the board, or we're happy to, to pray with you. And um, maybe you just need to cut this bond that was created. There's always second chances, right? And so if you've created a bond with somebody outside of marriage and you're not married to that person, maybe you need to receive healing from that. And ask, say, God, here's, here's, here's a bond that was formed outside of marriage. Repent of that and ask God to cut that bond. That might be something that you might need to do in your prayer time. And another thing is um, be accountable to someone, to other people. We're all in the same boat. You know, those of you who've been to the Set, set Free Retreat, uh, there's a, one part of it is, is confessing sins to each other. And at the beginning, it's really kind of like, oh, you know. But then you realize, oh, okay, we're all confessing the same stuff. Like, we're part of this evil world, right? Satan is still the rule. He's still true. So just be accountable. Find someone. Find a small group. If you're a man, find some other man. If you're a woman, find some other woman. And, and just let them speak into your life. Speak the truth in love. It is a lie uh, to think you just need to handle this on your own. And if you want, we have 
I know there's all sorts of things, but in your bulletin, you'll see Accountable to You software. That, uh, I think there's about 10 uh, people in our church that are using this. We have a church volume discount, so it's probably the cheapest thing you're going to find. And it's not perfect. You can get around everything, but if you want to be accountable, this is a good program that you can use to be held accountable. Uh, look it up in the bulletin. Um, ask us about it. It's, it's a really cheap because we've got a church discount. Other, also, are you single? Then you need to you need to affirm your singleness. And next week, we're going to talk about singleness. And I've heard growing up in a church not that much about singleness. What I have heard is, oh, when you get married, or you, know, you should be praying for your spouse now, and this expectation that you should get married. No. If you have single friends, or if you are single, then bring your friends next week because singleness needs to be affirmed. The Apostle Paul was single. Jesus was single. And if there are good things. Maybe, it's, maybe you're not planning on being single forever, but we need to affirm your singleness. There's a lot. And actually, you know, the largest uh, demographic of people who leave the church, never come back, are single uh, women, you know, midlife. They, they don't feel like there's a place, and that is wrong, and so I'm sorry. Affirm your singleness, um, and next week, let's talk about that. So I'd like to invite the music team to come on up, and I want to lead us uh, in a time of prayer, a time of response, maybe Again, as I say, if God has been speaking to you, now we pray that God would speak to us here. And if he has, then don't ignore it. And just, um, I'm going to ask you in a minute to bow and to pray with me. And, and let's, uh, if, if this is one of these four things is something you need to do, then, then let's do that uh, before, we, before we do this place.